This is It's a Long Story, a podcast that gives you exclusive insight into some of the lives and stories behind the big ideas presented at the Sydney Opera House. Every dish tells a story that's a lot more interesting than a combination of of noodles and sauce. Adam Liao understands how Australian families eat. Emigrating to South Australia from Malaysia in the 1980s, his childhood was a delicious mix of international cuisines. Precocious smarts fast-tracked his academic career and landed him at law school well ahead of schedule. Moving to Japan in his 20s to work at Disney Asia, he was settling into Japanese culture. But everything changed when he applied on a whim for the second season of MasterChef Australia. Ten years, six books and one snow egg later, he now hosts the award-winning SBS television series Destination Flavour. His columns and recipes provide a thoughtful culinary perspective and a solid knowledge of what you should put on your table tonight. Adam Leo, welcome to It's a Long Story. Thank you very much for having me. You were born in Penang in Malaysia at the end of the 70s, but you moved to Australia when you were three. Do you remember Malaysia at all? I do and I don't. You know, it's it's hard to kind of categorise your memories when you're that young, whether they're from trips that we did back to Malaysia, which I do remember very vividly, or whether it's just sort of me interpreting the reality from photographs that I've seen at the time. You know, I don't, I don't think I have too many first-hand memories of, you know, the, the age of less than three in Malaysia, but certainly I have very strong memories of, you know, four, five, six, etc. when we were going back there on holidays. What is your childhood impression of Malaysia? When, when you remember your childhood experiences there, what's the flavour of it? I think it was uh, it was a lot about eating, that's for sure. You know, I remember we, we took a driving trip from, I think it was Kuala Lumpur to Penang at one time, um, and it was, we had to try ayam goreng, which is fried chicken, at pretty much every town on the way from Kuala Lumpur to Penang, and so we had a lot of fried chicken there to try and work out where was the best place to stop for fried chicken the next time we did the drive. And, um, you know, there's such a vibrant street food culture in Malaysia. You, you always can... Um, I guess, contrast regional differences in various things. You know, um, fried noodles, for example, Hokkien Mee, is very different from when you go to Penang as from Kuala Lumpur, as from Singapore. And so when you see the differences in these noodles, the Kuala Lumpur style is, is has always been my brother and, and my favourite, and we'd always get there when we go to Kuala Lumpur. But in, in, uh, in Penang, it's a very, very different dish. So who was driving this fried chicken slash street food <laughs> obsession in your family? I think it was us kids, to be honest. You know, my, my parents certainly are not food obsessives. My grandma's an amazing cook, or she was, and um, uh, but I, I always have memories of we've got to stop here for something, was never driven by my parents. It was always us three kids. What made your parents decide to leave Malaysia for Australia? So it was only my brother and I at that point, and my brother certainly and me to a lesser extent had, had shown some pretty significant signs of being quite advanced um, in terms of the intellectual ability and learning. And so my parents wanted to give us the best possible chance. So they looked around for uh, where we could go to school. And of course, the, the schooling options were pretty limited in Malaysia. So they decided to to try Australia. They had a few friends from university who'd come to Australia and uh, uh, they wanted to get, particularly my brother, I kind of tagged along on, on the on the tail end um, into a really good school to try and sort of realise his potential. So tell me about your brother. Oh, he's, uh, I was saying to my wife literally just last night, he's the smartest person I know. You know, he's, um, he was reading at the age of 10 months. He's an know? older brother. Yes, mm. he's about, about three years older than me, mm-hmm. two, three years. And, uh, you know, he, he could read at 10 months. He was literally reading encyclopedias by the age of two or three. You know, my parents could see that happening and 
they definitely wanted to get him into a school where he could, I, I guess, do something more than what was available in Malaysia. What had they been doing in Malaysia? They're both uh, doctors. Um, they met when they were at medical school. Uh, and at that point, um, they'd only really just graduated a couple of years before and my dad was in the army. So my mum wasn't working because she just had two kids and uh, my dad was posted to Penang. Um, uh, he was a captain in the Malaysian army. What did they do when you all moved to Australia? Did they? What was their immigrant experience? Did they settle in quickly? Was it slower? Were they able to find work easily? I think for a lot of migrants, particularly when you're coming from a, um, a country where you are far less well-off financially than you are in Australia, it's always a bit tough. You know, I remember we lived in small apartments in the countryside, literally the, the cheapest places we could find. In Dad, South Australia? In South Australia. I think we first moved to a small town called Keith, we certainly didn't have a huge amount of money. My grandma had come with us to help look after the kids as well, as my mum was pregnant and, and so forth. But it took us a while to, to kind of get on our feet, as, as most migrant families do, I think. What are your memories of that time? Running around with neighbourhood kids. That was that was what we did an awful lot of, and, and a lot of exploring. You know, we explored Australia as best we could, and it was at that time, which was the early 80s, it was... You know, there were no low-cost airlines or anything like that. It was pile the whole family into the back of a Nissan Bluebird and drive as far as you can and, you know... We, we Hope that there's a beach there. Yeah, camping, swimming in the ocean, doing all kinds of things like that. It was amazing fun. But at some point during this time, your parents separated. Yeah, they, they probably about five years after we came to Australia. Uh, they, maybe a little bit more, uh, they got divorced and my... Brother and sister and I stayed with my mum and my dad moved uh, about four hours away to Wyala, to the country town in South Australia. How was that? I don't remember it being too traumatic, but I'm told that it was pretty traumatic. <laughs> the, th the thing is, you know, they all get along quite well. You know, right. there, there was not a... It was not a bad breakup. You know, there was no uh, screaming and throwing and um, long drawn out legal divorce or anything like that. It was it was pretty amicable and they've always remained so for, you know, the 30-plus years since. What was your relationship with your parents like as a kid? Uh, always very good. Um, and the thing is, you know, it's always been good but it's always been individual. I've never looked at them as kind of a set because uh, they really have, in my memory, have never been a couple. You describe your brother as, um, you know, the smartest person you've ever met and, and he was clearly, you know, way ahead of the curve when it came to sort of those landmarks of development. But but you weren't too shabby yourself in that whole, um, you know, childhood prodigy kind of arena. Yeah, I, th I think, you know, my brother is just flat out smart. I t tend to think that my uh, attributes are a little bit more rounded, you know, I was pretty good at sport and art and, um, you know, I skipped a couple of years at school, so it wasn't too shabby on the schoolwork as well. But it, uh, you know, I, I used to see it as a bit of a, a disadvantage, I guess, that I was never, you know, the the absolute best at one thing. But over the years, I kind of think it's it's better to have a, a, a kind of a, a reasonable proficiency at lots of different things rather than just be an expert in one. I'd, I'd just do one thing, work out how to do it, and then move on to something else. What's he doing now? He's a surgeon. In, he lives in San Francisco. 
you skipped a couple of grades in school, you graduated high school at 16, and then you finished a double degree in science and law by the time you were 21. Yeah, if I, if I had my time again, I'd probably take a little bit more time with it, but uh, yeah, got to the finish line pretty quickly in terms of education. What role did your parents play in that for both of your both of you and your brother sort of on this on this sort of fast and and possibly your sister too on a on a fast track academic career was there pressure from your parents to do that or was this Almost really self driven none at all to be honest you know they they did kind of the the structural work you know I I know they had to work extremely hard to actually get us into you know the, these kind of good schools that we we all went to my brother and sister and I and these private schools yeah they're the kind of schools where you got to put your name down on when you're born and whatever and certainly you know we we turned up in the country and said hey can we go to this school now and uh, they had I know they had a lot of meetings with headmasters and teachers and things and trying to establish um you know why it would be a good idea for us to go to the school and they got there in the end so um once we were actually in schooling it was pretty much left to our own devices and we were generally pretty good kids anyway so what motivated you not very much, to be honest. I mean, f- certainly in my, from my perspective, I don't think I'm very good at learning structurally. <laughs> oh. I quite like learning things. You know, I, I, I always like to say things. But if something, you know, the, the, the whole kind of structured education thing of you must know this particular set of facts uh, in order to do this exam, to get this mark, to do, get into this course at university, I'm you know, not much interest in it, to be honest. Well, you um, must have had some sort of talent there because yeah, you don't get a law degree without being able to memorise facts. Yeah, I know, but it was a bit stupid. I, re- I remember um, one subject that I did at university where it was I did a science degree as well and it was uh, about, I think it was microbiology, something like that, in my final year. And I was very proud of the fact that I didn't go to a single lecture or tutorial and I read the textbook, you know, the week of the exam and I got... 55% or something. And I was very, very proud that I'd passed this subject without actually attending to it. Now as a slightly more mature adult, I'm like, how on earth can you be proud of the lowest score you've ever received in anything in your entire life just because you didn't try? <laughs> Why did you choose science and law? My family's always pretty scientific. You know, my parents are both doctors. My brother and sister are both doctors now. Um, I had sort of entertained ideas of wanting to be a doctor, uh, but also kind of wanted to try something new. And so I was just kind of bumbling around, I guess. I had no kind of real idea of what I wanted to do. I, my mum always says that I wanted to be a stockbroker and then I wanted to be a... a um, a psychologist, I have no idea or no interest in either of those things now. But um, then I had a, a friend who was like, uh, he was the captain of our school and we've always been good friends. And he was like, I've got, got to go and you know, apply for law school. And uh, I was like, oh, yeah, I'll give that a go too. And so we ended up both getting in and, and that was that was kind of it. I really enjoyed uh, law, um, both the study of it and the practice of it actually for many years. And at the same time that you were studying, and sort of right through your right through your teenage years as well, you were very interested in food and cooking. Yeah, I used to cook a lot. So you know, when my parents um, divorced, my dad moved out to the country, and we stayed with my mum for a few years. But then, when I was about thirteen or fourteen, my mum and uh, my stepdad moved to New Zealand, 
and I was at that stage, I think in year 11, and I had not, you know, I didn't want to change schools to go somewhere else. So it was just me and my brother who stayed behind in Adelaide. So what, you were 15 and 18 or something? Yeah, 14 and 16. I think my brother was already in like second year uni at that point because he'd skipped a few more years of school than I had. Um, but we sort of moved out to my grandmother's house and my grandmother was spending kind of a few months in Australia, a few months in Malaysia um, throughout the year. So we, you know, we had my grandmother who was, you know, has always kind of shown, um, I guess, her affection and, and uh, it communicated extremely well through food um, while she was there. But then when she wasn't there, we were kind of also fending for ourselves a little bit. So we all kind of learnt to cook and learnt to actually uh, be slightly proficient in the kitchen to feed ourselves as we were going through. So what did you like cooking? It was always kind of simple family food. I've never been kind of a hobbyist trying to replicate restaurant-type things at home. I don't much see the point of it. I mean, I don't. not that I – if that's your hobby, I'm totally on board with you doing that. It's not my hobby. I, I, uh, I think the style of cooking that restaurants do and the style of cooking that is done at home are two very different things. Both have merit and both are very interesting, but I'm more interested in, in the home cooking aspect of it. Mm-hmm. But presumably um, meals in the Liao household, even when it was just a few of you, wasn't meat and three veg. Yeah, it was, it was sometimes. You know, um, my... We kind of became a blended family with my uh, mum and stepdad and we were living together there. That was from sort of age 8 to 14. That was 6, which became 7 kids and uh, there was always a mix of things on the table. You know, there was uh, my stepdad is very, very English and so is my mum, but uh, with because she was born in Singapore to English parents, it was uh, a little bit more Asian-influenced, I guess. So down one end of the table there'd be roast beef and Yorkshire puddings and things and then there'd be beef and oyster sauce down the other end of the table. <laughs> but your grandmother, Kwayan Chu, was a huge influence on your cooking growing up. Mm, very much so. What did she like to cook and how did she teach you? It was it was re- really interesting actually because, you know, she cooked a lot of the, I guess, Chinese Malaysian classics, which is, you know, things like nonya chicken curries and... Uh, fried noodles and Hainanese chicken rice and um, all of those kind of things. But being Hainanese, which is what my father's side of the family is, Hainanese have always had this reputation, firstly in Malaysia, as being very innovative in the culinary field. So they created things like Hainanese chicken rice and there's Hainanese restaurants and kaya toast and all of that. And um, But also it's not just kind of combining... Chinese type food with Malaysian type food, but it's also combining Chinese Malaysian food with Western food because a lot of the Hainanese, like my grandfather, uh, worked in you know colonial houses. My grandma was a washerwoman in um, some of the colonial houses there uh, at that time in Malaysia, and then later after in the Japanese occupation, worked in the same sort of Japanese rest houses and things. So. I remember my grandma never didn't didn't eat beef for a because a fortune teller told her she shouldn't, um, and uh, but she would still cook you know steak and mashed potatoes for us kids right. and things like that it was really quite interesting. And then what would have happened if she ate beef? 
how the she... The fortune teller thing. Uh, <laughs> sounds a bit silly to say it, but she thought she was cursed. Right. Yeah, because she had a very kind of unlucky life in many ways, but I, can, I think if you look back on it, it would actually be a very lucky life. Um, and someone had told her, uh, a fortune teller had told her many, many years before that um, she herself was cursed and so, you know, it was, it was quite a superstitious thing. She wouldn't eat beef and for years her kids had to call her auntie rather than mum so that, the, you know, the, the curse would, the curse would, would, the, would miss them. It, you'd confuse the curse. Yeah, something like that. But and that's very much a product of her, you know, place oh, and generation, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it was that time. She was not particularly religious or superstitious but I think everyone in Asia growing up at that time, she was born in the 1920s, uh, has a certain amount of superstition <laughs> that comes along with that. So at 23, you got a pretty big job that took you to Japan. You became head of legal for Disney in Asia. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't the head at that point. It was a, a junior lawyer's position there. And then um, after a few years, I was promoted to it was the head of legal for one of the divisions of Disney, not all of Disney for Asia. Um, it, what did you think of Japan? It was mad. <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd, m- most of my memory, all of my memories really had been around living, growing up in Adelaide there, which is uh, a lot smaller place than Tokyo. And Yeah, there are some differences. <laughs> but I also had, no, I didn't really have much interest in Japan um, before I took the job there. You know, I didn't. I'd had sushi a couple of times maybe. I don't think I'd ever been to a Japanese restaurant. Really? Yeah. Well, there weren't many in Adelaide. There were maybe two or three at that point, a lot more now. Um, Didn't speak the language, had never been there, went there for the first time for the job interview, second time with my bags to move there. So it was was certainly a a, a steep learning curve. How did you deal with that? What, What was your sort of approach hitting this completely new city that was your home? I don't think I had a plan. In retrospect, probably should have had a better plan. <laughs> but, I, you know, I wasn't particularly interested. I just wanted to – I was more stressed about the job, you know. Growing up in Adelaide, you kind of have a bit of small-town syndrome and you think that, you know, geez, I've got this kind of big-ticket job now. Am I going to be okay at it? You know, every single person uh, that was working in that industry there went to Harvard or Yale or Columbia Law School or Oxford or whatever and, you know, I, I – was a bit stressed about, you know, am I going to be exposed as a fraud when you walk into all of these kind of high-powered um, situations? But uh, so it took me a few years. I just sort of put my head down and worked for a couple of years. But then after a couple of years, I um, started to be able to work out that I was actually in Japan. I didn't really feel like I was in Japan. The working environment was in English at that point and um, was mainly dealing with international issues. So it wasn't much Japanese law. Uh but then after maybe two or three years, I thought, oh, okay. And I, I, I still couldn't speak the language, hadn't, you know, beyond ordering in a restaurant or anything. So then I started to learn Japanese a little bit and had a tutor and started to explore a little bit more as well. And what did you discover that made you want to stay? Because you've got a very deep relationship with the country. <laughs> I lived. I, I was only planning on being there like two years. I ended up staying there nearly eight, and um, it was great fun. Uh, really, really interesting. You know, particularly in food as well. One of the, my earliest memories was um, I was. I think I was still living in a hotel at that point, and 
I just wanted to make a simple prawn pasta. And I went down to the supermarket and I couldn't find prawns, couldn't find pasta. I don't know what kind of supermarket I was going to because if you walk into a Japanese supermarket now, you can easily find any of those things. But all I wanted to make this, this pasta that I'd made quite a lot when I was living in Adelaide. And I walked out and I did find the ingredients in the end and I walked out and it cost me something phenomenal, like a hundred Australian dollars to make this pasta dish. And I was like, oh, I'm going to have to change the way I cook if I'm going to survive here and not blow all my salary on food. Um, so then I started to sort of learn a little bit more about Japanese food. The other thing that happened over this time in Japan is that you met the woman that became your wife. Yes. <laughs> How did you meet? How did you meet Asami? Uh, she was a producer at Disney as well, actually. How has your relationship with her kind of, I mean, it's obviously strengthened your your ties with Japan, but it must also give you sort of, you know, different insights into Japanese culture. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, she's been um, the the best tutor on uh, all things Japan that I could ever hope for. She's, she's a pretty traditional kind of person, so she understands a lot about traditions, a lot about history. And so if I ever have a question about, things like that she could she can generally help me out with it pretty well one of the main problems for a lot of i guess intercultural relationships is you work out how to live in one culture so we you know met and we didn't get married in japan but we'd been together for a few years by the time we moved to australia and we had you know our life in japan and then when we moved to australia a lot of cross-cultural relationships will break down at that move you know because your way of interacting, you know, it might even be as simple as language, uh, Asami. I didn't speak Japanese as fluently as I uh, do now, I guess, at that point. So Asami was, if I had to go to, maybe not the bank or the post office, but if it was something more complicated that was uh, that I needed to go to a government department for, she'd come along with me and help me to translate and things. Um, and then obviously those roles kind of get reversed when you go somewhere where the language is different, the system is different, you know. Uh, so, but, yeah, I've been amazed at how I guess she's been, she's a very proud Japanese person. Um, so she has no interest in becoming an Australian citizen. She has uh, very little interest in, um, I guess, being Aussie. Mm -hmm. uh, she feels like she's here uh, because... It's a great place to live, but she's always going to be a Japanese person in Australia. Um, but she's taken to it like a fish to water. She loves it. She loves going to the beach. She loves, go you know, she loves the lifestyle that we have here. Um, so I don't know if we'd ever go back to Japan, maybe in the future, but certainly no, no, no immediate, plans. no immediate plans for that. It's interesting how um, sort of fetishised Japanese culture is becoming um, in the West. You know, yeah. I suppose there's always been a bit of that, but I, I feel like things, you know, things like Marie Kondo and stuff kind of <laughs> takes what's actually kind of a basic idea and wraps it in this kind of sort of fetishised notion of Japanese purity or something. What do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, certainly it's the case, but I, I think it's the case with almost every culture that uh, people look at around the world you know you could say we fetishize italian nonnas as much as we fetishize sushi chefs in in, in the food context you know you, you can barely have a discussion around sushi without someone bringing up that it takes 10 years to master the art of sushi or whatever and everything in japan has to be not, not really <laughs> if you certainly you walk into your local food court no one's spending 10 years to work at sushi train <laughs> but um in, in some respects it is the apprenticeship for 
those kind of um, in those kind of restaurants does take a long time, but it's more about the amount of knowledge that you need to have. It's not how to make the perfect piece of sushi. It's more about there are three thousand different varieties of fish with different seasons, different types of preparation. Um, but certainly, to throw a bit of salmon onto a bit of rice does not take ten years to master. Uh, but yeah. I, I, I don't mind the romance about it. it. It gives us a way to look at things a little bit differently. You could say that maybe we, we kind of, in a post-religious Australia, a post-religious Western democracy or Western civilization, we, we tend to want to look for spirituality in a lot of things, um, whether it's yoga or um, the the fact that a an old Japanese man has worked his entire life just to feed you a piece of fish on rice. <laughs> so why did you decide to leave Japan? I've been there eight years. The GFC had just happened. It was 2009 when I came back to Australia, 2008 was the GFC. So a lot of the projects that I'd been working on around Asia were not going ahead. Work was very quiet. There wasn't a lot to do. And I was getting a bit bored, to be honest, you know. Uh, maybe it was a seven-year itch. I think I'd been there just over seven years at that time and uh, just wanted to try something new. What made you apply for MasterChef? <laughs> God knows. <laughs> <laughs> literally, you know, it all worked out okay, so I'm not going to beat myself up too much about it, but literally just a stupid thing that for anyone to do, you know, what are the, what could possibly... Uh, what it was was... I had a lot, I'd never even seen the show, which is how stupid this decision was. I had a lot of friends who'd seen the show, really liked it, knew that I was um, okay at cooking, knew that I enjoyed it, and they said, you should apply for this show. No idea why I did. Literally no idea. Maybe it was just I was sitting at my desk because all these projects had been mothballed and I was like, what am I going to do? Oh, I'll just tap in an application for this. And they sent me back... Uh, Things saying come in for an audition. I was like, okay, not going to do that. That's a stupid idea. But then, you know, what? It, Jetstar had just started flying to Japan literally that week, and it was a long weekend in Japan. And there were cheap flights. The, the flights were like five hundred dollars <laughs> return, and I was like, oh, it's a long weekend. I'll pop back, see some friends in Sydney, and uh, I'll go to this audition. Just you know, give me an excuse to to go back. And I really enjoyed the audition process because it was talking about food, talking about not so much just how to cook, but why things were important. And I believe the phrase is your food journey. <laughs> yeah, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> if I knew then how much that phrase would irritate me now. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I just genuinely enjoyed the process. And then I, I still never intended to uh, actually go on the show and, I kept going back for the different stages of auditions, essentially just to see friends in Sydney. And then when it got time to actually, you know, you get on the show, I was like, mm, no, not doing this. Thanks very much. See you later. And I dropped out at that point. But then uh, my dad, who has always been quite of a, quite a, um, I guess, a stereotypical Asian dad, um, said, yeah, you know, give it a shot. Why, why not? And um, I think. I was just thinking about this the other day, actually, because it is such a bizarre decision if you know me <laughs> well enough. I think it was the fact that that same kind of small town syndrome that you have when you 
grow up somewhere that's not particularly big. When I moved to Japan, it was kind of like, oh, okay, I, I can be a good lawyer in an international context, not just a good lawyer in Adelaide. And then I think maybe I'd also started to question various other things. So all right, the reason I became a lawyer was because that was, in my opinion, one of the two best jobs you could get when you're in Adelaide. Got to Japan, it was like, oh, you could be an investment banker and make four times my salary, or you could uh, do all these other things, you know, that I had no exposure to in Adelaide because my worldview was get this job that is one of the good jobs and then do that until you're the best at it. Mm. And then it was at, after doing it for, I was a lawyer for a little over 12, a little over 10 years, slightly less than 12, I think, about 11 years. And it was like, well, I kind of see how this is going and it's not a bad way that it's going, but what if I just, you know, took a year off and tried something new? Mm. So you did try something new and you um, you did MasterChef. What was it like? Relaxing. Everyone says it's so stressful, but it's When you've been really working 20 hours a day the, in a law firm. <laughs> it's the exact opposite. It's so imagine, – imagine life with no mobile phone, no internet, no newspapers. You just sit and read books most of the time. That's the MasterChef experience. Uh, it's a lot more – efficient these days. But back then it was a mega blockbuster of a show. It had a huge budget. We were living in this big mansion on uh, on the harbour in Sydney and there was nothing to do. You know, filming, mo- if anyone's worked in TV before, they know that most of what you do in TV is sit around waiting for stuff to happen. Hurry up and wait. Exactly. And that's what it is, particularly when you're a contestant on MasterChef. So you, you sit there and you do nothing for most of the time and you read books, you chat with your friends, you have a glass of wine. It was really very nice. <laughs> and you won. You won the second season in front of a national audience of 5 million, which remains the largest ever non-sporting audience in Australian television history. It's, it's a lovely statistic, but that was pre-streaming, pre-fragmentation into the digital sure. market. So sure, it was sure. pre-multi-channels, you know. But, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's still true. I fact-checked. Yes. Um, did you feel famous after all of that? No, nah, not really. I mean, people recognise you for the most part, I guess, when you know uh, a quarter of the Australian population has seen it. Immediately after that, you could really walk down the street without someone recognising you. Um, How was that? It was, it was a very, very big transition. I went from living in my own apartment in Tokyo, working as a lawyer, to then I was living in a hotel in Sydney, um, I didn't know what I was. I still don't know how to describe what I do these days. But I was actually at that point. It was um, I was writing a cookbook because I had to write that very very quickly after. How do you write a cookbook? I got quite lucky. My first cookbook. Sometimes I look back over it and I'm like, oh, still not not so bad. Uh, there's obviously things I would do differently. I don't think you you really knock it out of the park the very first time you try and do anything. But I think you need to have a clear idea. You need to understand a lot more about your audience. In my first book, I guess it was me trying to put down what I found interesting about food. Um, and it ju- I just got a bit lucky that I think the way the things that I found interesting about food tend to be what the audience found interesting about food as well. One of the things that you are very strong about and that I find really interesting is the linking of culture with food. Mm. 
And while that's not a new idea, I think that your sort of framing of it as food food is something that actually tells stories mm. is interesting. I mean, that's what I find interesting about it. You know, you, you, particularly in, when we do destination flavour, um, on everything really, you know, even writing the columns that I write for the newspapers, food is, is kind of a codified version of a much, much bigger story. You know, sometimes it's an individual story about the person who made it, but why they made it is an interesting story as well. But if you just look at any dish that is on a dinner table, whether it's yours or mine or whoever, the fact that that dish made it to that table, you could write a series of encyclopedias on how that got there. If it's spaghetti bolognese, you know, why did spaghetti bolognese end up on your dinner table tonight? Is it got to do with your family? Is it geopolitics? Do we go back to post-war uh, Italian migrants who did not come from Bologna but mainly came from around uh, Naples. Why did they come to Australia? Why did a dish, you know, like a, a Neapolitan kind of tomato-based braise of, well, now beef but previously pork and veal, why did that happen? Is it because Australia had a strong beef industry? Is it because we grow a lot of wheat? Is it because somebody decided that, dried pasta was a fabulous product and remains a fabulous product so people didn't have to make fresh pasta every time they were doing it you know the you could take politics climate culture geography everything you know economics is it it's cost effective for people to make spaghetti bolognese all of that goes into one dish and the kind of the least interesting thing about a dish is how to make it Mm. um or what it tastes like Every dish tells a story that's a lot more interesting than a combination of of noodles and sauce. What do you think about the cultural appropriation debate when it comes to food? The idea that in order to be able to cook or write or present or own a restaurant that, um, you know, uses a particular culture's food, you need to be part of that directly? No, this is completely stupid. Um, There is no such thing as authenticity. There's no such thing as um, ownership of a culture. Uh, Every single dish or cuisine that we eat today is the result of a constant evolution. You know, 500 years ago, there was no chili in Indian food. Um, There was no tomatoes in Italian food, you know, everything has changed in cuisine and it's the evolution of that that tells a story. I think what um, what people are really talking about in the cultural appropriation debate is people failing to understand a cuisine when they don't take an effort to actually understand it but just want to change it anyway. It's kind of like bad fusion. Um Every cuisine is a fusion cuisine, but it has always come from people who understand the two things that they're fusing. You know, you don't just whack things together and see what comes out. Please don't put tandoori chicken on a pizza. (laughs) (laughs) I will say I'm not a huge fan of that either. But So, for example, you can go to Japan and have, and I have had some of the best French and Italian food in the world in Japan, but the approach that many Japanese chefs when they're doing that is in order to open this Italian restaurant, I lived and worked for 15 years in Italy and I studied the cuisine and I understood how to make it, the context of it, where it all kind of fits. The flip side is, you know, you see a lot of people 
who are opening Japanese restaurants who did two skiing holidays in Niseko with a stopover in Tokyo for three days. You know, <laughs> um, There's going to be a very different level of understanding of those two cuisines and it's not an issue of cultural appropriation. It's an, under, it's an issue of not understanding something well enough to be able to do it justice. Yeah, yeah, and respecting it too, I suppose. Mm. So you have several cookbooks, which are very good. You've got a really, really great TV show. Um, you said that you probably won't open a restaurant, um, which is completely fair enough. The other, the other big part of your life at the moment, of course, is your kids. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that take up a lot of my time, that's for sure. How did fatherhood change you? Um, turn me into my dad is what it did. <laughs> that's that's the most immediate result, which is not a bad thing. He's a he's a he's a very he was a very good father, still is. Um, I enjoy it. You know, that's I think parents spend a lot of time worrying about how to be good parents and don't spend enough time actually just enjoying the process because it's fun. It's exhausting. It's kind of crappy sometimes, but it, for the most part, it's good fun. What do they like to eat? They eat a pretty varied range of things. You know, we eat a lot of vegetables in our house, so it's good that they actually like vegetables. Um, quite often they'll be eating more vegetables than meat. Their, their, their meat tooth is kind of coming out a little bit more now, so my son is growing, so he cannot eat enough meat for his purposes. He's just shoveling it down. Um, but they, they like vegetables. They probably eat more fish than meat. They like the regular things that kids like, hot dogs, hamburgers, happy meals, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But um, for the most part, last night was dumplings and uh, cabbage and broccoli fried together with uh, ginger, a bit of rice as well. It, it's just ordinary home cooking, I guess. Mm. Do they cook themselves? Are they learning? They do. They, they always like to to cut food, so they're pretty good with the knife skills at the moment, they like to stir a little bit. Um, they can make their own breakfast in the morning in terms of buttering their toast and whatever, and they do enjoy the process. They're very competitive about it as well. If one's buttering toast and the other one hasn't had a chance yet, they're, they're furious. <laughs> well, it sounds like a lovely domestic situation. <laughs> Adam Liao, it's been so lovely talking to you. Thank you very much for coming in. Thanks, everybody. Adam Liao was at the Opera House to host an exceptionally good discussion with Yotam Otolenghi. You can watch the video of that event on our YouTube channel. And this is our last episode of It's a Long Story for a Little Bit, but we'll be back in a couple of months with plenty more behind-the-scenes stories from our incredible guests. This season of It's a Long Story was created by Susie Anderson, Jacqueline Booten, Joshua Craig, Rainbow Chan, Riley Edwards, Josh Gardner, Kyla Keane, Fleur Mitchell, Louise Omer, Ellen O'Brien, Rachel Power and Nerida Ross. With thanks to the extended talks and ideas, recording and broadcast and Sydney Opera House digital teams. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and I'll catch you next time. Mm-hmm.